As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hello and welcome to the game podcast from the Times. Gareth Southgate's team have booked their ticket to the Euros in Germany next summer. England expect, and maybe with good reason this time, right? We'll be discussing England's chances, plus the magnificent Jude Bellingham. We'll be taking a look at the sad story of Jadon Sancho's exile at Manchester, Manchester United and TV's growing threat to the 3pm blackout. I'm Gregor Robertson and here with me to discuss all of that are Martin Samuel, Tony Cascarino and James Gearbrandt. England registered their first home win against Italy since 1977 with two goals for Harry Kane and another from Marcus Rashford. They secured qualification with two games to spare. Martin, you were there. Yep. Um, And you wrote afterwards that we shouldn't be scared to admit England could win Euro 2024. Yes. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's about as far as I would go. I wouldn't say uh, England are going to win um, the the European Championships, but we shouldn't be scared to talk uh, as if we should or could. I feel the same about Arsenal and, and the league uh, this season, going into going into the league title race. You shouldn't be scared to say this could be our year. We've spent two hundred million pounds. I feel the same about England. You shouldn't be scared to say we have got a chance here because we've got generational talents in in key parts of the team. And there's some there's some big flaws as well. There's some uh, parts of it that need to be addressed. But. Um, Every team in Europe would want to have a striker like Harry Kane. Every team in Europe would want to have Jude Bellingham. Um, and then I think there's a few other positions um, in which you look at guys like Declan Rice, in which you look at guys like Kyle Walker and think every team in Europe would like to have a player uh, of that calibre at, at their disposal. So, um, And that was a team without uh, Bakayo Saka as well. Um, who's who's key to it? Phil Foden can't always get in, and we thought Phil Foden was a generational talent a couple of years ago. So yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons to be positive about this England team. Doesn't mean you're going to win it, but um, it doesn't mean that we should go in. I think there's a little bit of negativity about England sometimes because it's always it's disappointed in the past, and we always get that feeling. Oh, we build them up, and then it's it disappointing. But that doesn't mean you can't be optimistic. It doesn't mean you should stop dreaming about things. You you kind of you wrote that this is the best England team since the golden generation mm. of two thousand and four. What's what's different about the kind of atmosphere and what's different? What gives England a better chance? Well, I think than, Southgate's than made a difference in that respect. I, I really do. I think he um, has given the team a purpose and a confidence that maybe it lacked before doesn't get you through a penalty shootout in a home final uh, as we discovered because you know things happen but um, I think generally players like playing for him players like being um, in and around England uh, the England camp now which they didn't always used to like Um, personally I think the 2004 team was better uh, I really do. I, I don't think that had the same weaknesses, actually, that um, that we find with this team. 
uh, certainly like the centre half position, we were sport for choice. If you go back to two thousand and four, uh, which we're not at the moment. Um, but um, I haven't I haven't seen an England team that you'd feel as excited about as as this one for a long time. And in Bellingham, I mean Bellingham, I think is the first time since coming out of the 1990 World Cup with Paul Gascoigne where you could look at that and think we might have the best player in the world here at the moment. We might have the most influential player um, in in the world. You know, if not now, going to be at some stage. I mean, he's an incredible talent. Do you agree with that, Tony? Yeah, I agree with a lot Martin said there. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd probably say just... On that team of 2004, Ashley Cole was left back at that Ashley time. Ashley Cole was left back, yeah. England have got an Ashley Cole. No. Um, and I, I would probably say Cole Walker's ahead of Gary Neville because I think he would have been right back at that time. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I think defensively, again, at the heart of the defence, I would say that definitely the 2004 team was better as defending as defenders in that side. Um, I'm, I'm, I'll, take it, I'll take it back because in 1998, I was sitting in the dressing room at Nancy with Emi Jackie sitting next to me. His son was a player at uh, a Nancy Football Club. A young lad, but not he didn't make a professional, but he was in the you know, through the academy. And I sat there talking to him and he was telling me about the French team and how he saw it. And they'd been beaten by Germany four one, I think it was four one, uh, about four months before the World Cup in France. And he was getting a lot of stick. Lakeep, like they always do, as James mm. will know, will go after every manager. And Emi Jackie got a lot of stick around. And so it was in, that, in between that period of beaten by Germany, France going to host the World Cup in 98. And we were chatting. He was talking about the strengths of the team. And he actually said to me, and it always stuck with me, he said, we can win. I think we will win. And, and he said, I think we could go back to back. And I remember thinking, he's, not, he's sort of... He's given, he's given himself the World Cup, <laughs> yeah. like laughing, and that's actually said back himself, to back. Yeah, yeah. They went and did that. I, by the way, um, I don't know if I should say this on radio, I had the biggest bet I ever had on France winning the World Cup in 1998. <laughs> you were allowed to um, then. And you were allowed to bet then. And it was an international that I couldn't have any influence on, but I was so convinced that France could win it because I'd saw, I'd saw, I was, you know, looking back, I was remember thinking, played against Zidane again it was a Bordeaux in 98 I'm sorry I'm going to drop a few names in here yeah, yeah, and yeah. I played against Dugarin and, and, and a few others Henri was I played against Monaco and I kept thinking there's a lot of good players in this French team and so we're emerging and I remember thinking that and and it struck me this week that and I've said this before I really feel this England are close to going back to back I'm not even thinking the Euros next year I'm thinking they could go back to back tournaments now that's a big stretch I do think there's an element of me. Have they got the manager? Can Gareth lift his his standard as a manager to take them to heights that I I get excited when I watch England team play the Republic of Ireland. I get excited. I, I look at them and think, wow, standout feature for me on 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 what day was it? Tuesday. Tuesday. On, on Tuesday night, second half performance. Mm. I've seen England play lots of very good first halves and not been the same in the second half. And that happened against Italy, and it happened against Croatia in the semi-final. The semi-final of the World Cup in 2018, England's first half was a team that should have got to the final. Yeah. Their second half was the reason why they can't win it. And I think that's what struck me. 
that their second half performance, when, it, when they went 1-0 down, they get back to 1-1, and then the second half was literally steamrolling the, the Italians. And mm. that struck me. And I think there's loads and loads of things to come out. And maybe it's an exaggeration. I, I Hand on art, I really think it would be amazing if they didn't win something with the amount of quality in their forward areas. It's just whether... I think this is going to be the big challenge for Gareth because there's one thing... Look, we all know. We've just watched the Rugby World Cup and we're watching the second half and late things that happen in games. Mm. Fergie time, if you like. That's instrumental to getting the results yeah. to get you over the line. You have to have that. Does Gareth have Gareth time? Does he? Because mm. at the moment, I would have said no. But I think it's a real valid point. Johnny Northcroft wrote um, after this game that he thought Gareth Southgate showed he can think quick on his feet to outwit Spalletti. Um, do you think we're seeing any sort of evolution in, in, in Gareth Southgate's tactical approach? And, and maybe, as Tony's alluded to, you know, that's been a criticism in the past. He's not been able to think quick enough in mid-game to, to change, the, change the direction of the game. Do you, think, do you think we're seeing any evidence of that changing? Well, I think... Perhaps the, the as you say, the one question that I think people will still have is that is that in-game tactical, you know, the the sort of that very high 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 level tactical management of whether you can really change the flow of a game as it's happening on the very biggest stages. I think I'm not quite sure Southgate has proven that yet. But what I would say, and coming back to the comparison again with the 2004 team. Yes, you can go through the 2014 and, you know, player by player and say maybe the 2014 was a bit better. I mean, it's, I think I don't think there's much in it, to be honest, but, you know, maybe 2014 had more quality. But I think two things. 2004, obviously, was Sven's second major tournament, and this is Southgate's fourth. Obviously, things can go stale, but actually, I think in this case, it's a good thing. It's a, it's a plus that this team has been together for... A long time and I also look at this England team and I think this Southgate you know whatever his you know people like to talk about his limitations but I think Southgate has found a balance with this England team I don't look at this England team and think oh I'm not sure about that you know is so and so in the right role I think with the 2004 team however much talent they had I think there were always questions about about there were always slight imbalances weren't there you know I don't. I'm not quite convinced that Sven Jorn Eriksson ever quite found a system that felt really balanced and felt really like the perfect arrangement of the talent that he had. To me, it could be could be wrong. It could you know it may prove otherwise. But I just feel that this four two three one that England have now hit on. I mean, it's not particularly, it's not necessarily a particularly imaginative or funky system. But to me, it just it just feels really balanced I don't look at it and sort of think oh, I'm not sure about you know so and so in this role obviously there are you know there are positions where England are a little bit weaker than some other teams but not many um, I'm I'm broadly like Martin I would say I'm broadly positive and optimistic about England's chances which doesn't mean they're going to win it but I think you also have to look at the overall context if you look at, ask yourself, who are the teams right now in Europe that really look like they could win Euro 2024? There are a lot of teams that, you know, would usually rank among the kind of main contenders that to me, I just can't see winning it. I can't see... Who, who, which teams? I can't see Italy winning it, to be honest. 
Might not make it. Might not make it. Might not make it, yeah. Um, Germany. Germany. Mm. Obviously, I suppose you can't really rule them out with home advantage and the Julian Nagelsmann effect, but it's just so, so hard to see a team that's been in such mediocre form for years. Going back five or six years now, it's hard to see Germany winning this tournament for me. Can't see Holland winning it. Spain? Spain, I think, have to be considered contenders and have to be respected given that they won the last Nations League but I think if you look at Spain's front three which will probably be Ferran Torres, Morata one of Ayazabal or Ansu or someone like that on the left you'd take England's front three every time over that mm. front three wouldn't you? Mm. Um, the, the French would always still be The French of course I think yeah, that yeah, they are yeah, the main ones yeah. for me yeah. Um, we missed out Scotland there too, obviously. <laughs> but with, with, with sorry, with, with Gareth and the and the change in the game and everything, I think that's the that is the next step. And it's not about uh, reacting. Uh, I, I know what Johnny was saying the other night, but it's actually I always think with Gareth, it's not so much about reacting. It's about making the change first. About being. Make, making that attacking move first if you look at a lot of what goes wrong with England it's that you're in a second half period and you're thinking right they're going to change we need to do something to put their manager on, on well that's the what back, Croatia did at half time yeah absolutely they're going to do something they're going to do something to put us on the back foot we've got to put them on the back foot change you know make make that change now make that introduction of whether it's Jack Grealish or, or Phil Foden or make that change now give them something to think about and we sort of carry on and we carry on and it happened with Italy as well in, yeah, the, in yeah. the European Championship final and then Mancini makes a change and then suddenly we're reacting to what they're doing rather than giving them the problem. And I think it's that last little bit of, I don't know whether it's what you'd call that, whether you'd call it tactical now, or whether you'd just call it having the confidence to, to, to just to be the one that go, is bolder first, basically, you know? And they have so many, so many weapons and so on many the bench. Options to, yeah. So yeah. many yeah. options to do yeah. that, you know? Yeah. A couple of so a couple on a couple of the weaknesses. Then we, we you've you've pointed out Calvin Phillips's sort of mm. situation a number of occasions now, and this is probably the biggest example yet of sort of the ring rust showing. Mm. He, you know he's lucky to stay on the pitch. What what does it mean? You know as a former player, Tony, to when you're not when you've not played you're not playing football regularly. Mm. How does it affect you? Happened for me when I was at Celtic. Uh, I didn't start well. wasn't playing well. Liam Brady left me out. Scored six goals in seven games for Republic of Ireland. But, and the big but, and this is where probably Martin's coming for, from, is that you're, you're playing a lot of games in a short time in a tournament. Now, getting someone through one game on adrenaline, you know, that can be quite easy. But if you're going to go game after game in, in a short space of time, what would Calvin Phillips be like if he hardly plays all season, gets to the group phase, plays the worst first game, and, OK, England might only need him for two games out of three because they might qualify from that group. But I think the short period of time and then expecting performance after performance in, like, six, seven games, I think would be a tough call to get right. I I like him, and I get what James is saying with the the, the setup, and and I think it, that that's spot on. We had Mick McCarthy and Kevin Moran as centre half. David O'Leary was playing at Arsenal, and David reminded me that they both played for Millwall and Blackburn, mm. and he played for Arsenal. <laughs> okay, that was Jack Charlton's choice, but and he was stubborn about it. He was really stubborn. Liam Brady got left out of our team 
you know, because he was stubborn of what he wanted. Now, um, I get it. I think there is a sense of loyalty from Gareth and he really believes there are certain positions that needed to be sewed up and not necessarily be... I mean, I, I was listening to Danny Murphy in midweek and his commentary on Rico Lewis and should he be in? Well, yeah, but, you know, there's always one or two. I can remember John Barnes and Chris Waddle, you know, mm. with England being questioned to be being in there. Chris Waddle was playing the best club football in his career at that time when he was getting boozed by uh, Wembley by, by England fans. So I, I think... That's the genius of the manager. You know, I, I just, I'll always fall back onto that because I do think there's master strokes. And as we alluded to earlier, that sometimes reacting first to even, even if you're in a winning position, instead of waiting and then seeing it and go, oh no, now what do we do? The Croatia game, I've, I've watched that probably three times. I remember thinking, all they've done is their wide men, they've switched and made England's fullbacks be pushed back. Mm. And it just changed the whole outcome of the scenario of the game. And that's why England lost it. Just one other kind of perceived weakness is, is Harry Maguire. Um, for the same reason, he's not playing enough football. And that, that's always been the reason that everyone's putting forward. You, you've, you've written... Um, for for the Times newsletter this week, mm. kind of boring into the data of his performances. Mm. Actually, not, what did you what did you find about? It's not even so much the data. It's quite hard. We we actually had a question into the readers' inbox about you know, can you sort of show with data Harry Maguire's effects on England? And it's actually quite hard to do that simply because there is so there's a very limited <laughs> sample without Harry Maguire. He's played mm. an awful lot of the kind of serious matches. Harry Maguire, I think. I mean, what's interesting about Harry Maguire's career is when he when he really emerged and sort of was popular, he was very he was a some he was really quite an adventurous, progressive centre back. And you you'll remember at like the twenty eighteen World Cup, for example, he would drive yeah. past players, you know, he would almost play as an auxiliary attacker at times. Also a very good passer of the ball, um just you know, I mean, not to kind of be really boring about the data, but he ranked very highly in, you know, things like progressive passes, progressive carries, which, you know, when you carry the ball, pass the ball forward 10 yards. Um, and his abilities in all those areas really have gradually declined, whether that's because of, you know, he's being asked to play a different type of football at Manchester United, whether it's because he's also lost a bit of confidence. But, but certainly he doesn't quite offer the things that he he used to offer in that regard. And the other thing about Harry Maguire is Harry Maguire has a bit of a technical weakness in build-up, which is that he is quite a sort of particular thing. But when the ball comes across him from the right, and obviously Harry Maguire usually plays on the left, although we did see him play on the right a couple of games ago, possibly the one against Ukraine, I think, when he played on the right and Gay played on the left. can't remember exactly, but... He usually plays on the left. And when the ball comes across him from the right, Harry Maguire tends to take his first touch with the outside of his right foot <laughs> rather than taking it on his left. And that obviously quite often has the effect of sort of closing off, you know, obviously closes off the pass to the left back. It closes off a lot of the pitch. And we really saw this, uh, particularly, I think, we, you can actually see it if you, you know, if you pick pretty much any England game, you'll find an example of it, I guarantee. But we saw it particularly in the in the game in the recent game against Scotland. Obviously, that was a very particular match when the crowd were really on Maguire's back. But there were a lot of moments when the ball was passed to Maguire from the right, and he really slowed the play down just because it took him. You know, he took that first touch. 
He's often he often then wants to play a past the Matulas under pressure. Yes, that mm. or it just has to go back to whoever's playing yeah. right centre back. Yeah. Um, and I think England obviously have some options in that position. So I think it, it looks like at the moment Mark Gay is seems to me to be uppermost in Southgate's thinking. Gay, of course, is also right footed, but he does he does seem a little bit more comfortable taking the ball on his left and playing with a slightly more open body position and and in the game against um in in his recent games he played a couple of really nice passes where he was just by receiving the ball in a more open way he was able to find Rice or Bellingham between the lines look there are a lot of you know there are a lot of good reasons why Southgate trusts Maguire and I think whatever you think about Maguire you have to say Maguire's played three major tournaments for England and he's been pretty solid performer yeah. in those major tournaments and you know and you can't underestimate as well the intangibles you know cohesion you know the sort of Maguire's kind of status in in the squad his sort of leadership all that leadership kind of thing, yeah. the sort of the, the consistency of having of having him there but and, and frankly, I suspect that Maguire will be a starter at, at the Euros. But um, yeah, I, I just think he is—he's technically become a more limited player. And I, and I think it might be if if I were in Southgate's shoes, it might it might be worth having a real look at Mark Gay over these next four games. We've we've, hmm. sl- we've fleeted over Jude Bellingham, but my God, we can't stop. Like every time there's an England game, he just steals the show. It's mm. you know, won a penalty, assist for what well, was it? Was it an assist? I suppose it was. Yes, it was. But he kind of did everything. He won the yeah. won the ball, and he's on the edge of his own box. Mm. Seer and run, laid it off to Rashford. Then another run to kind of drag the defenders away. He's he's just a force of nature, isn't he, Mark? He's a game changing player. Uh, he's potentially a tournament changing player because um, he is the guy that will drag you over the line and, and, and he, he, he seems such an old head and uh, all the all the cliches basically old head <laughs> and young shoulders and all of that sort of stuff but I mean I can remember when, when he left Birmingham and uh, and they retired his number yeah. I think he'd only played about 20 odd games for them or whatever I can remember writing a couple of paragraphs in a, in a column Taking the Mickey out of it, and and how would get you like it was Paolo Maldini or something? He played twenty five games or whatever. Looking back, you know they knew more than I did. You know they obviously seen him and went right. This is this is Paolo Maldini, but he's just for twenty five matches. Um, <clears throat> an incredible player, absolutely incredible player. And as I say, that feeling uh, in in nineteen ninety, and he's probably misplaced because Maradona was still going in nineteen ninety and still going for another four years. But it was on the wane, and and when you watched Paul Gascoigne in that tournament, you just thought, no one else has got anyone like this. No, you know, no one else has got a player like this. And that's what you see with 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 Jude Billingham. I know there's there, there are we were talking about this earlier, Gregor. There's there's prettier players, and there, there there's guys that will do the spectacular and everything. I'm not sure there's too many guys out there that can change a match the way that Jude Bellingham changes it and the way that England took that game away from Italy in the second half. I mean, two breakaways that were converted with such confidence and that, I think, is what he's also brought to the team. He's brought a feeling of confidence to that team where good players look around, you guys must know it, you look around you think, oh, we've got so-and-so. Well, we've got we've we've got this guy in the team today. Mm. This will be all right. This will be all right. You know, mm. he, 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 he can he can get us out of trouble. If we're in trouble, this guy can get us out of trouble. That's what you'd think if you were a teammate of Jude Bellingham's. That's what you'd think when you saw that starting lineup. Right, we've got well, him. 
we're, we'll all me- remember his number, won't we, at Birmingham? We all know the story. Yeah, yeah. The 22, f- yeah. the 10, the 8 and the 4. Yeah, that's right. A mixture of yeah. three, three players. Yeah. Um, yeah. I It was quite weird because I've listened a lot this week and, you know, references. You always get a... He's been spoken of as the best, one of the, yeah, the well, best players in the world. Well, he's, you know, that... Someone said to me the other day, you know, I was on radio talking about it, someone said to me, well, he's, you know, if he can reach that other level. And I went, how about if he just stayed as consistent <laughs> yeah. as he is now? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, laughing, because I'm thinking, yeah. really? Yeah. He's been brilliant. It's just, that'll do, you know, laughing. But I also felt, and of course I had the, the Gazza reference, and you can reference loads of players that have mm. qualities. There. And I said to one of our bosses, I was chatting to him yesterday, and... Um, and just said, you know what? You know the Gerard Lampard argument? They couldn't play together. Mm, I mm. said, well, they're playing as one person now because he can do both what they yeah, did. Absolutely. That's a testament to how good he's totally. been. He can be both of them. Mm. He can be Lampard and drive forward, get goals, get on the end of chances, mm. score goals. He can be that player that moves the ball around, you know, the driving force of what uh, Gerard. I think he's them two in one. <laughs> but, but also, I, I quite like the fact that Bellingham has really emerged this season as mm. number 10. Yeah. And 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 you know obviously yeah, he's point. he's a he's a he's a player who you know he's so brilliant and so multifaceted that yes mm. you know he probably could he could play as you know he could play as VA or you know uh, and and in future he may you know perhaps he'll develop into an even more rounded player but just for now I really like and I think it's positive for England that he has really emerged as the number 10 mm. because that what that gives England is just complete role clarity in that midfield mm. you know that Phillips or whoever it is is the six Declan Rice is the eight and Bellingham is the ten and mm. I think international tournaments are often won by you know the systems number. that the, systems yeah, that tend to be number. quite number. simple but that are very clear and it's, exactly, it's essentially exactly you know remember at France at the last World yeah. Cup Conte was the six Pogba was the eight in a more disciplined role than he usually played and Griezmann was the ten, was the ten yeah. complete clarity and I mm. think mm. That's that's what Bellingham's emergence as the ten gives England. Yeah. And going back to that two thousand four point you were making, James, about Ericsson, you know, it, it, there was there wasn't the same clarity. There was, but it wasn't a, a good clarity. I mm. know exactly the point you're making because we had Beckham, Gerard, Lampard, and Skulls, mm. and he was trying to play them as a pretty much a conventional four, so that Beckham stayed right and Skulls stayed left, and Lampard and Gerard were meant to operate as the Pistons, like uh, Vieira and Petit operated mm. for, for Arsenal, but they didn't do it. And everyone thinks it was because they kept charging up the field. It was the exact opposite problem. They were both too disciplined. They were both mm. too scared of, of letting a gap in. So they ended up both staying back. And we ended up like mm. with our two best forward players, both looking at each other, going, well, do I go or do... And, and what he had to do was make a call in that... 2004 tournament to bring Hargreaves in and the guy that had to go and he was going to be the last guy to go but of that four midfield he was the least impactful and that tournament was Beckham he was the one that was the tournament where you couldn't quite work out what was wrong with him because he he wasn't injured or anything like that but he wasn't quite at his best in the 2004 tournament having got us help get us there um and that was the change that had to be made uh, to accommodate Skulls, who's a generational talent that ended up retiring from in, uh, from international football because he kept being played on the left, and to make sure that Gerard and Lampard 
could both go on. And it was a great shame. I've always thought that was the great missed opportunity. Mm. And that is why, as you say, it, it it's so important that we've actually got a team mm. that makes sense at the moment because England should have won the 2004 European Championships. I have no doubt about that, that there was an England team there that was the best team yeah. in Europe. You can look at history and you can go through quite a number of teams and you can say, you know... Zidane in 98 was the 10 that made massive differences. Mm. You know, you can look at players of that quality. You can go to Maradona in 86. Yeah. You know, it was all about he was such a wonderful player. How do we make the rest of the team fit into him but still be a really good side and have different qualities? Um, that's happened numerous times. Um, but it feels funny, though. We, we spoke about this earlier, Martin and I. That, uh, you know, just talking about him in, in the same breath, Bellingham, in the same breath as players of that quality, mm. or even mm. some of the other best players in the world just now. But, it, as Martin said, he's not. It, it's about his, his impact on games. There's very few players well, on the planet just now who impact every single game they play in Greg, quite we're, so profoundly. We're not, we're not talking about a young lad that's come through the scene and come from the lower leagues. and You know, he was at Birmingham, but he ended up playing for a big club called... Borussia Dortmund in yeah. Germany the and then by the way then had a big move 17. to Real Madrid mm. he's playing for Real Madrid Real Madrid have invested over 100 million they obviously thought we are getting the best player midfield player in the world for this mm. price we have to take that deal you know and he talks about afterwards I would want to play the rest of my career at Real Madrid you know I want to play 15 years at this club his mentality has stuck out the way he mm. reacts the way he interviews the way he plays I don't see a you know, we talked about Gaza, and Gaza had a reckless side in him. Yeah, totally. You know, and and that why was why Gaza wasn't the best player on the planet. Yeah, because there was a reckless side to Gaza, mm. um, and I don't see that in Bellingham. Hopefully, that stays that way. But I do see a player who's playing for Real Madrid. Let's not forget that mm. he's not playing for you know a club mid-table somewhere who's who shines, who rocks up at England and has been brilliant. He's been brilliant for Dortmund. Obviously, Birmingham didn't play there very long, but he was brilliant for them. Mm. He played brilliant for England. He's been brilliant for Real Madrid. Mm. It's hard to find a little bit of a weakness in there somewhere. And he's not even at the age yet, I don't think. Um, that I, I sat down with Arsene Wenger a, a couple of years ago, and he was talking about all the, the research that he has done with FIFA into into age groups and mm. you know what things happen at what age. And he talks about separation points, ages, average ages, at which there are separation points where a truly gifted player just leaves the peers behind or whatever. And, and he says, you know, that he'd been in football obviously all his life. He said, and you can, I can, you can get a bunch of 15 or 16 year olds. He mm. said, and I couldn't tell you who's going to make it out of, out of this group of 15 mm. or 16 year olds. But 18, there's a separation where you can begin to say, yeah, yeah, that guy's a player and, and that, that guy hasn't quite got it. The final stage, the one that he said is the most important stage of separation, happens at 22. Right. He said, and that's when, that's what he said, when we look at all of our, uh, our data and our records, he said, that's when the sort of the Messi-Ronaldo type separation occurs. Those players that are going to be the greatest of their generation. It's at 22 that they suddenly just disappear into the stratosphere compared to their contemporaries. Bellingham's not at that stage yet. He's not actually at the stage where, where, where according to FIFA's numbers, and he actually leaves everybody behind. And you know, maybe he's just an early developer, and he's left everyone behind a bit earlier. He's always been there, but, but yeah, <laughs> but but he hasn't reached the stage, according to Wenger, where you just disappear. 
You just, you know, look around and there's no one else around you all of a sudden. Okay, well, one player who has reached that age is Jaden Sancho, who's 23, Mm -hmm. and so we'll we'll be speaking about him after the break. Um, Still loads more to come. If you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you're subscribed. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game for the latest subscription offer. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. James Gerbrandt, Tony Cascarino, Martin Samuel joining me, Gregor Robertson here. Jadon Sancho. The sad reality of Jadon Sancho's Manchester United XL is the headline in today's Times uh, of Paul Hurst's piece. The winger went from a £73 million sensation to a pariah. How did it happen, he asks. Some really fascinating insight and detail in this piece about the sort of, as it says in the headline, the reality of of the situation Jaden Sancho now finds himself in. He's not allowed in any part of the first team building at Manchester United's training ground, including the canteen, so his meals are carried to him in the academy facility in a black takeaway box with a United badge on it and a plastic lid. That's a nice touch. Uh, yeah. Uh, he trains on the academy pitches away from the rest of the youngsters um, with one coach for, for company. Um, and because of safeguarding rules... Um, you know, the, the the building contains minors. Sancho must change on his own and lock the door behind him before removing his clothes. So, this is this is a, a remarkable fall for grace, fall from grace for a player who, let's not forget, uh, started in the quarter final in, in in the last Euros against Ukraine and missed one of the penalties in the final. So you know, was a an important player for Gareth Southgate, and you know the, the idea of him making England's. Uh, squad for the next Euros is, is is virtually zero. How how has this happened? Well, <laughs> oh, this story has has been pretty astonishing for quite a long while. Where look, you fall out, you have disagreements, mm. things are said. Sometimes things, as we see with social media, are written, and then you have the manager who's trying to change the dynamics of the football club that's been failing, and standards haven't been reached. And somewhere along the line, I there's always stuff you don't know. You know, what has actually mm. happened? Have they yeah. had a face-to-face? Has things been said in that face-to-face where Ten Hag has gone, you know, we're hearing no him recently. Yeah. There's no way out of this. That I've got to move him on. There's been rumours of him going. 
I, I found it difficult to, from Sancho's side to uh, to try and get why a young man would make that comment about being left out. I, if I'm thinking of me, I would have gone and saw the manager. If he had said something I didn't believe was true, I would have gone and knocked on his door. Now, that hasn't happened. It was done by a social media post. Um and it's just escalated. And he's refusing to apologise. Yeah, and he's refusing. But I would have. To me, it's like simple. You don't need your agent. You don't need to speak to anybody else. You go and knock on the guy, and if he's dishonest, you can look him in the eye and you say, "Well, you, what you said there is not true," and he will know ten hard. So obviously, there's a massive breakdown between the two of them. That for a young man who's seemingly, you know, had other issues off the field, and you know. I don't get what benefit Ten Hag would have by just ditching him and discarding him. I know managers have done that. We all know managers mm. have, have just gone, you can go and train with the kids. Don't want you nowhere near me. I never have been put in that position, but I've seen players who have, and managers have been brutal to them. I remember the story of George Graham, what he was like to a lad called Dean Neal at Millwall. You know, the way he basically left him out a year because he wouldn't sign a new deal at Millwall. You know, he, the guy was top goal scorer. George Graham wanted him to sign a new deal. He refused to sign. Left him out completely. Dean Neal was playing non-league a year after. Didn't play any football at all. Now, some managers go a bit too far. Um, so it's a really tough one to dissect, dissect for me on, on where it all lies. I just wish Sancho owned it a bit more. And I think that going back to the basic things in life of sit down and talk to someone, tell him how you feel... Why wasn't happy with that particular statement that the manager made? Uh, from there, it's I don't. It feels like I'm speaking about a lot of stuff. I don't really know the answers. All I know is there must have been one hell of a breakdown. Twelve goals and six assists in 82 appearances for Manchester United after 114 goals in 137 matches for Dortmund. You you you've been a kind of goals champ. And goals and assists. I goals and assists. Yeah. Um, You've been a bit of a champion of, of Sancho, even when he was playing over there. You thought, mm. over in Germany, you thought perhaps he's not getting the kind of the recognition uh, or the profile he deserves. And also, you've written quite recently about the fact that without the kind of pioneering, trailblazing Jaden Sancho, who 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 went left Manchester City for for Borussia Dortmund, we might not see the Jude Bellingham we see today. Um, mm. So this this is a hugely sad situation for for a player of that quality and that that talent i think it is really sad yeah i mean uh, yeah i I thought Jaden sancho was a hugely exciting player when he was at borussia dortmund and and i think with players with these kind of situations you you always sort of you can always have get a sort of bit of you know revisionism and people sort of going oh he wasn't really that good but but you know sancho was so you know, not even on sort of, you know, kind of just on, on sheer goals and assists, you know, the the bread and butter of an attacker. Sancho was an exceptionally good player for Dortmund. I think, you know, in Sancho's three first team seasons at Dortmund, if, across that three year span, there were only two players in Europe who had more assists. And that was Lionel Messi and Thomas Müller. I mean, this was a guy who was, you know, who was operating at a, a really, really high level. And, you know, obviously there are different types of good player. There are some good players who are just able to impose their excellence on any system. And there are some players who are maybe a little bit less resilient, maybe a little bit less versatile, and you know, who are excellent in a very particular system and 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 find it more difficult to sort of adapt. And and maybe Sancho has proven to be, you know, one of those in the latter category. But I still I still think 
yeah, I still think it's a hugely sad situation. And, and you know, I, I, I do think it was probably, you know, who knows, without Sancho moving to Borussia Dortmund and being such a success, would Dortmund have taken that punt on Jude Bellingham or, or would Jude Bellingham's representatives have been as confident in... Well, there have been making, so many players, not decision. only Jude Bellingham, who followed, who followed suit Absolutely. and saw an opportunity to get, you know, first team action in a in a major European league. It, it, it's 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 disappointing as well what's happened because, obviously, you know, Sancho essentially hasn't really done it at Manchester United. I think you know I would argue there have been matches, you know, matches and moments and matches where I think he's played well, but you know, clearly overall you have to say he hasn't really done it. But I think also he had. What's disappointing about this particular situation at the moment is that Sancho actually had a chance to establish himself in the team, obviously with Anthony's situation. There also have been suggestions that Sancho has now sort of sees himself as a left winger and doesn't really like playing on the right. To me, that feels... I would like to know more about that, but to me that feels strange given that when he was at Dortmund... It was pretty much 50-50. He played both and he played a lot of minutes in both and was successful in both roles. So I'd be interested to know where the kind of apparent reluctance to play on the right comes from or where where his own conception that that's not his best role comes from. Obviously, it's, you know, the opportunity at Manchester United, if he was not in this situation with Ten Hag, seems to be, would seem to be on the right. And I I think it it would have been... With what has happened with Anthony, I think he would have had a chance to, you know. I think so much of it as well, and and I think this is true of so many players, like, you know, I mean, also looking at players like Donny van der Beek, I think so much of it as well. Some players just need rhythm. Some players just need consistent minutes. And Sancho played so regularly at Borussia Dortmund. And I think so much of what was what made him excellent was, you know, just building up that that rhythm, constantly exchanging and interacting with, you know, the players around him, building up those kind of familiar patterns. And, and I think, you know... Not many players have done that at Manchester United recently, Not many basically. players have done that at Manchester United. <laughs> no, and I think, no. you know, it, it's, it would be... Um, I think we'd all, lo- we'd all know a lot more about Jadon Sancho and, 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 you know, we'd be kind of closer to sort of understanding the enigma if... He really had a run of consistent minutes in the first team. Not, I'm not. I'm not blaming Ten Hag for not giving him minutes, or you know, arguably he hasn't he hasn't done enough to deserve that. But I think the particular sadness of what's happened this season, or one of the one of the great shames, is that I think Sancho, in a parallel universe where he wasn't having this dispute with Ten Hag, would have had an opportunity to mm. maybe play regular minutes in this team, and you know, kind of get his career back on track a little bit. And obviously, that's that's not happening. Is what I don't understand. So. Agents have, you know, it it must be very easy. It's very easy for an agent if all you actually ever do is negotiate a new contract or set someone up with a boot deal with, you know, with a boot manufacturer or whatever. This is where um, the agent should be earning his money. The, uh, you know, the, this is where, as a mediator in a situation like this, equally, this burgeoning recruitment department that uh, we always hear about at Manchester United, all these the many directors of football that every single club has got now, directors of football, the head of recruitment, that. 
where are all these people in the middle of this? Where are all these people saying, right, okay, this needs this needs mediating between the player and the manager? I, I, I find it unfathomable that you have got an asset to the football club that is measured in tens of millions, 75 million did they pay for him? Um, and no one is is really inserting themselves in the middle of this and trying to actually sort it out. Because at the moment, what is playing, I can't even see that it's still a story when people say, oh, Sancho will be sold in the January transfer. Well, of course he'll be sold in the January transfer. Ten Hag was, was, wanted him to go to Saudi Arabia permanently this summer. That's how, that's how bad the situation was by the time we got to the end of the last transfer window because the, the Saudi Arabia deal broke down because Manchester United, and by Manchester United, you've got to believe Ten Hag, wanted to make it permanent and the Saudi Arabians only wanted to make it a loan deal. And, man, and, and it was turned down because Ten Hag's thought was, I just want him out. So that is a situation that, that has been irretrievable uh, since when was the transfer window? First or second of September? Yeah. Where, where are the club in this? Where is his agent in this? In trying to find some way forward? I don't get it. Well, one of the greatest players in the world we've seen in the last two decades was obviously Ronaldo. Mm. And the way that he was out the club yeah. pretty dramatically. And you could never accuse Ronaldo of being unprofessional. No, no, no. I mean, no. It's, it just doesn't go hand in hand. This guy has never done... OK, he's got an ego and he's got this um, yeah. side of him that it is all about Ronaldo. But that's made him the great player. Mm. And and I, I found at the time, I remember thinking, oh, Ten Hag, you're taking on one of the greatest players he's ever played. And you're making him look like a a problem at your football club. He's spoken and, a lot about the, the need to, to change the culture and to impose sort of more discipline. So I, 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 think, I suppose you're seeing that as okay, a, So you Sam Ronaldo really is um, un, well, ill-disciplined. I, I, no, no, what I'm saying is any any player who's ageing and their powers are on the wane doesn't like to see M- maybe, themselves, maybe. their value diminished a little I, bit. I think maybe. It, so can I just make one sorry, quick... Sorry, sorry, James. I just want to make this... Because there's a point that's always stuck with me on him. Is that maybe he returned to Man United and gone... This club has gone miles backward. Mm. Okay, so though. Oh well, I think he was. Look, he, he was still a heavy an asset to Manchester United, and I don't think he's he was being ill-disciplined in any way. I think what he done was spoke a few home truths about where the club had gone and the direction. Ten Hag didn't like it, and probably had a a face to face with Ronaldo. And Ronaldo said a few things to him as well that he did on his own coaching or something. So I I, I find it. I find it a bit difficult to accept that Ronaldo was this bad pro at Man United, but everywhere else he was an incredible pro. Yeah, <laughs> I find it hard. I, I still think you have a little bit of the shadow of Sir Alex Ferguson at, at play here because Manchester United obviously had this incredibly dynastically successful period under a manager where it was his way or the highway. And, and you, there are so many examples of that. And obviously, you know... Beckham, talks about, it in, out, Beckham yeah. talks about it in his documentary. There were ones that Fergie regretted, like Yap Stam as well, mm. where he decided that he just had to go. And I and I think, and obviously, and essentially United haven't really had, they haven't really had a, a, a really successful manager since then. Obviously, no. you can make your arguments about, but really they haven't, they haven't, they haven't got it right since yeah. then. And I think part of what Ten Hag is doing and, and part of why generally, I think, 
I'm right in saying Ten Hag remained pretty popular last season, even though he showed Ronaldo the door. I think part of it is is because you have this unignorable precedent of Sir Alex Ferguson and the way he operated, and it's where I, nothing ever ended well. Nothing ever. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if ten, I don't know if, I don't know if Ten Hag is consciously trying to kind of live up to that, or or whether it's just. You know the sort of the kind of institutional culture of the of the mm. place. I don't quite know how it works, but but you know there are other ways of doing things. I mean, look at you know. I mean, it's different, completely different example. But you know, you look at how Mikel Arteta, you mm. know, uh, sat down with Granit Xhaka, for example. You know, mm. when when Xhaka was sort of you know seemingly on his way out and persona non grata, and you know Arteta is in some ways quite an old school guy as well. Mm. But he was able to sort of. But he didn't do it with Obama. No, true, true. Do you know I mean, what I mean? Yeah. I, I think it's one of those things where you pick and choose who's, yeah. who's worth saving. Yeah. I've, yeah. Always, yeah. I've always thought this, that high-maintenance pest part of it. <laughs> um, you know, a high-maintenance pest is worth it whilst they're absolutely <laughs> delivering. Everywhere Cristiano Ronaldo went, he absolutely delivered. So all of the high-maintenance stuff... Steve Bruce tells a story about uh, about uh, Ferguson, and um, so when they, uh, whenever they were on club duty, uh, Steve said that they had to wear the, the club blazer. I know you know this story. You know this story. It's a great story. So they had to wear the club blazer. The club blazer blazer had this giant old, the old fashioned Manchester United crest on it. It was like the size of the lapel. It was huge, and everyone hated it. Absolutely, everyone hated it. But whenever you went anywhere. Mm. You know, so uh, so they've gone to the uh, they've won the league and they've gone to this town hall reception and the it's edicts has come out, it's club tie, club blazer, and all the boys are like absolutely furious or whatever. He said, and we've turned up. He said, uh, and we're all there like, look, can you believe this? Or you know this? He said, and Cantona's walked in. He said, and he's got a pair of ripped jeans on. He said, he's got this shirt untucked, no socks, thong sandals. And he's, he said, and we're all looking at him. Go, no. He said, and he said, the boss is over there. He's not said a word. He said, so I'm the captain. He said, and everyone's coming up to me going, you can have a word. You can, you can, you can you see, no, you can. So he said, I'm like shuffling a little bit closer to him, a little bit closer to him. I go, go on, go on, tell him. He said, and in the end I've got next to him, he said, I said, uh, boss, he said, I said, a few of the lads are just wondering, you know, if if you've seen our Eric's come dressed tonight, you know. <laughs> Fergus looked at Cantona, he's looked at Steve, he said, if you can tell them, if they can do what he does for us, they can come dressed as Joseph and every Technicolor dream coat as well. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the high maintenance yeah, question. Yeah. You know, if Eric Cantona wasn't doing it, the high maintenance yeah. and the pest part of it would, would outweigh, you know, that would have been him out of the club. Biggest myth in the world, okay, Sir Alex Ferguson at uh, Sir Alex Ferguson uh, didn't sort of choose who he decided to have arguments with or not. He appeased Roy Keane for a number of years when he was his best player. Yeah, it was his best player was never going to upset Roy. There was yeah. loads. I had enough Man United friends who you know from the Ireland team and 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 Keane was appeased for a long time until he weren't his best player. 
then he was shown the hard door out immediately. So, you know, Fergie was brilliant at that, where he could manage a star and he could make different demands of certain players. That's a talent. That's managing talent. And I just think... Fergie was just so, so strong in that department. I think Eric Ten Hag's biggest problem is, I'm trying to think of anyone in that Manchester United team at the moment that you would turn a blind eye to. I don't think there's any of them at the moment are playing well enough to not be disposable. That could have been anybody at the moment, couldn't it? I mean, who would you look in that Manchester United team right now and go... Well, you'd, you'd, you know, he could turn up dressed in sandals and, uh, <laughs> you know, he could, he could turn no, up. No, no, well, yeah, there's no not one. too many, is there? No it's one. really not yeah. too many, you know. No. Well, it'll be fascinating to see um, how Jude and Sancho can mm. reinvigorate his career, if he can, and where. So, um, on to uh, the Premier League uh, 3pm blackout now. Yeah. Um, well... The Premier League has no plans to ditch the 3pm blackout, but it seems to be backed into the, the corner. It's the very last tranche of games from 2025 that will not be shown live on TV. Um, 200 From 200 up to 270 games from 380 per season will all sh- be shown live now. And so we just thought it'd be worth asking, can the 3pm blackout survive? And if it matters, Martin, what do you think? Look, it, it doesn't greatly matter to me, but... Uh, you know, I'm I'm not trying to run a, a League Two football club. I mean, they'll tell you how much it will matter. When we were chatting about this uh, earlier, one of the things um, that Gregor mentioned actually was that we are moving towards this. You know, like the Champions League coverage where there's a goal show immediately after the final whistle. Mm. I think that will almost be a bigger distraction. And Gregor mentioned it. I thought, yeah, he's right. That will be the bigger distraction if there's something like that more than because if you're looking at there's a hundred and so what are we talk about 110 matches that won't be live on television. Yes. So if you look at the sort of matches that they will be, I don't think if you are a fan of Tranmere Rovers, you are not going to go to Tranmere because Bournemouth versus Crystal Palace is is on the box or whatever. I really don't. So. I don't think that the 3pm kick-off... I think there's a lot of games that you could put on at 3 o'clock that wouldn't necessarily affect the yeah. uh, affect the lower divisions at all. It's not like they're going to say, I oh, will have Liverpool and Manchester United kicking off at 3 o'clock. However, if you're having goal shows and more packages and, and, and that sort of thing, that whole idea that, shall I go to Tranmere or shall I just sit here and watch... Uh, you know, watch the watch the twelve thirty, then watch the highlights package at this. That could be a, a, a bigger. Uh, that could be a bigger problem. I do think we are moving, and I, I sat there and I worked it out the other day. You could you could pretty much have a kick off every two hours, from twelve o'clock to eight o'clock at night on a, a Saturday, and then twelve o'clock to eight o'clock at night on a Sunday, and that should that should ten Premier League matches, and so you could actually have every single game live on the television if you wanted if you wanted so it's almost like having you're right those, the, the 3pm kickoff in isolation would not dissuade no um, you know as you say fans of lower league clubs from going to their mm. going to watch the local team but if you have wall to wall coverage through, yeah. through every Saturday and Sunday that might and particularly yeah. if you're a young, young you know a young football fan getting into football and and you've got the, the choice between watching four or five games uh, mm. on <laughs> In, in one day on the TV or going along to watch your local non-league club it's, it might change someone's mind Tony yeah I'm I'm thinking about do I need to 
get a solicitor because I'm not sure my missus will go along. <laughs> <laughs> Can there be more? Well, that's another. That's another fair point. That's another fair point. Is there? How much is too much football? Um, Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. But I, I I would have thought ten years ago that I know that's coming. I think we all know that. That's pretty much American sport. We have so much more American owners that you know they play. You go in an airport and you sit in any airport and you want and you're certainly in America. You got game after game. You just sit at the bar and watch the game. You know, that's what life is in America. So. Certainly baseball. I mean, baseball, there is no moment of no. any day when baseball is not being played somewhere yeah. in America. Yeah. I mean, it's so ridiculous. They've got four sports, really. Yeah. If you go baseball, basketball, American football, and maybe ice hockey, mm-hmm. you know, they, it's wall-to-wall. I've, I've sat in the airports in America a number of times and thought, I wonder if we'll ever get to this stage where you'll just sit and watch sport on 24-7. And funny enough, I visited my dad in America in, oh, what was it, mid mid to late 90s. And and he had a channel on his TV and it was the uh, Cowboy Channel. Mm. And it basically was Bonanza, High Chaparral and all these Cowboy <laughs> films, <laughs> one after the other, 24-7 yeah. every day. And I said to him... Dad, you, is that what you do? Just put, he said, oh, the Westerns they've got on here, they're brilliant. And, it, and I remember thinking, surely we can't, they can't have a whole channel. And they did. Yeah. And, and I think we will end up with 24-7. Look, we have radio stations. You know, I work for one, 24 hours every day, sport. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't see it getting less. I see it getting more. Mm. Will it be flooded? Probably. Will people pick and choose what they watch? Yes, I would imagine so. I, I, uh, I sort of got used to it, really. Cowboy Channel is, is, is that is that ever on TV? Yeah, TV, TV. You just go to channel whatever, wherever, and there you are, one after the other. It go from every western of every type, and it's just. And I remember thinking, well, that's where sport is. Mm. That is where sport is now. We we are, you know, you got you can watch cricket on like where we've had the rugby. I mean, I call it. Some days I laugh, and I'm, I, I do this a bit too often, but I always laugh. I say. Uh, yeah, you know they have Super Saturday or yeah, Super yeah, Sunday, yeah, yeah, and they yeah, give yeah. all these names. And I go, yeah, that's Divorce Sunday, that one. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Where you literally, <laughs> yeah, well, you, yeah, every single game. Yeah. I think. I mean, I, I, I don't have like I, I personally don't have particularly strong views on the three pm blackout just because mm. I, I see, I, I can see both sides of it. But I think, I think what's difficult is for the for the UK based consumer, right? It's a lot of money because it, it's quite. It's quite fragmented. There are yeah. games on, there are games on Sky, and there are games on TNT or whatever it's called now, mm-hmm. and there are games on Amazon. So it's quite a lot of money to watch, to subscribe to watch Charlie. Premier League football. It's you know, and I, the problem is that you have some of the games that that are not currently viewable in the UK are actually mm-hmm. quite good games, mm-hmm. and people in you know other parts of the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm can see them and mm. if you're a uk consumer and you're shelling out however many hundreds of pounds it is per year and you can't you can't watch mm. whatever game it is that's a bit that's a bit annoying i mean is that sustainable i'm i'm not sure i think i think with it that in the end all the, all the premier league are doing really is they're just trying to give more and more over to get more and more money you know which i know sounds very obvious but I don't think people always realise what what they're actually... It's all to try to stop a, a, a band of elite clubs 
breaking away, trying to negotiate their own television deal. This is they're, they're trying to put so much yeah. money in the game all the time that Manchester United and Liverpool are, will not turn around and say, "Well, actually, we we'll do our own TV, we'll do our own package, uh, uh, and everything like that." Because I mean, that was that was always Scudamore's greatest achievement was every single year persuading the owners of Manchester United that they should be part of a collective bargaining uh, arrangement. And, and, and he used to explain that they were the only ones that would really, really benefit. That, that actually a lot of the elite clubs that, that might think they would benefit from it, when you looked at the Premier League's numbers, they're doing better as part of a collective uh, bargaining deal. Even some of the bigger clubs, Chelsea and, and stuff, mm. are still doing better as part of a collective bargaining deal. But Manchester United would just just disappear over the horizon. I, I think if they I'll, negotiate their own TV deal. I mean, you boys would probably know this better than me, but I think up to a few years ago, the the audience, because obviously you can't watch the Premier League games. Mm. Well, you can, but you're not on the Premier League channel. Um, around the world, was something like 400 million. Mm. Uh, you know, we're watching. <laughs> which are re- incredible numbers. Well, if you look at this weekend, for example, you've got the Merseyside Derby at 12.30, televised, which Jurgen Klopp is obviously not happy about again. Yeah. Um, and the London Derby, Chelsea-Arsenal at 5.30. Uh, Sheffield United-Manchester United at 8. So mm. you know, Man City-Brighton you would probably pick as a 3pm game. That's going to be a fascinating game. So mm. if you know, if they had the opportunity to sit and watch all those games yeah, absolutely. <laughs> on, a, on a Saturday... It's true, the opportunity to, to to go out, to leave the house for a bit and maybe go and watch a local game or your team yeah. would be, you know, it would... But but that that's also the issue, though. So Man, Man, Man City v Brighton is at 3pm, 3 3 is it? Yeah. And that, that's the issue that I was talking Why about. Why shouldn't like, we get to watch that? If you're a football fan, if you're, if you're a fan of Premier League football and you're playing X hundred pounds a year to mm. watch Premier League football on TV, you might really want to watch, Yeah. you know, Pep Guardiola yeah. versus Roberto De Zerbi. Oh, that's a mm. great game, mm. right? And you can't... To me, that that's that's the that's the sticking point. That's that. Yeah, I don't it's, know, it's the I kind don't of know battle about, between. I don't the, know the if that's global, sustainable. It's the battle between the global fan and the local fan, which is sort of mm-hmm. still got a long way to go. I think. Anyway, Martin Samuel, Tony Cascarino, James Gearbrandt, thank you very much. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you're you're subscribed. Leave us a review, and we'll be back on Monday. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.